This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known guests about their lives, their careers and negotiating those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Perry Phillips and with me, pre or post fringe or in between, during even. It's during, it's Jim actually, Daly. yeah. It's Jim Daly. Hello, it's hello, during. hello. Yes, it's during. This comes up on the episode with our guest, Ollie Phillips. I've got the guest in so early this week, yeah. um, who is absolutely fantastic. Eager beaver. Um, but we talk about being on the fringe, but I say during the recording, I think this will come out after the fringe. It's, it's actually going to be mid run, I think. So yeah. by now I'm going to be, so, uh, about two weeks in, I think. So it'd be really right good. This is the be- perfect time to come and see you then. You'll perfect be... time to come yeah. and see me. Yeah. I've literally just checked my Twitter and someone's just messaged me saying, I've put some tickets for the eighth. So they'll have come hey. and gone. Um, so a few sales are going up, which, which is lovely. So, uh, but yeah, I, I can't wait to be at this point. That's weird me saying it now, but like, I'm looking forward to what the show is going to be like at this point. But if, if you are someone that is at the fringe or is coming up for the next couple of weeks, Please do come and see my show, Jim Daily Football and Fatherhood, 4.30pm at the Grass Market Centre, every day. Tickets from edfringe.com. It would be lovely to see you there. Wow, that's the earliest I've done the promo for that. Yeah, nice. I'm proud of myself. I've, I've teed it up. You knocked it away. Yeah, like you say, we've got a brilliant guest today. It's Ollie Phillips, who is a rugby player, who played sevens and 15 aside for England and obviously Newcastle as one of his big teams, played alongside Johnny Wilkinson. Yeah. Everybody obviously knows as being a phenomenal player. And it's immediately interesting insights into Johnny um, and in the dressing room and stuff, isn't there? And and his practicing and um, self, a lot of self-doubt and stuff that he sort of had about his, his abilities. And, um, and that's really interesting. That obviously got us talking about all sorts of different things with, with regards to Ollie's career as well. Yeah. Oh, fascinating guy. I mean, incredibly successful rugby career. Um, but also now off the back of that, and he retired quite young for a uh, 29 for, for, for a sportsman, for a rugby player talks about that being quite a low moment in, in his life and the difficulties that that came along, but then also fueling that to go on and do some of the stuff he does now, uh, with optimist performance and, uh, and talking about positivity in, in coaching and helping people sort of reshape their, uh, their mindset as well to get the best out of themselves as well. So, so much that you and I resonate with in terms of the positivity angle and, 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 getting people to focus mm. on the the goods and the wins and you know a lot of stuff we talk about on the podcast is an absolutely ideal guest for us but also yeah. 
uh, fascinating sports career. Chance for you and I to, to obviously ask our nerdy sports questions that we love doing when we're sports. <laughs> yeah. Come on. And yeah. yeah, and the stuff about Johnny Wilkinson, which was just very early on in the episode, very fascinating as well. But but um, Ollie is also just a really good communicator, mm. you know, and again, that's what he works on now as well, people helping to people improve their communication. But he's just a good talker, a yeah. good, you know, good at stories. And just so it's fascinating talking to him and just an absolutely top look, even if he, you know, is a Brighton fan. It's yeah, fine. it's fine. No, but it can't be perfect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you can see why he was a a, a captain for his various yeah. teams that he played with because he's got that le- all those leadership qualities. And I know he yeah. was, you know, again, he that was something he was uh, self deprecating about. He sort of talked about his um, his positive and negatives that uh, with regards to his captaincy and some things he learned post career um, yeah. about how how better to work leadership and stuff. So yeah, really, really good. I was going to say it was it was a really fascinating. Um, conversation overall uh, you were saying that there was a lot of stuff that we could come alongside not so much the elite sportsman bit though <laughs> no that's a really nice bit at the end where he's, he's like you know imagine we all play for Palace in the Premier League and you oh, and I like honestly oh, I can't dream. even imagine it it's just dream. can't even well you've played <laughs> at Sellers Park I haven't Wait, I've scored at Sellers Park I've been in so... the goal at Sellers Park Okay, so there you go. We've both been involved in a goal. Let's no, it, I was in the goal at an open, open day they let people on the pitch basically <laughs> Still, it counts. It still counts. Yeah. Um, well, I, do you know, I do a presentation when I go do school events and stuff, and I do talking about becoming an author. That is one of my prime pictures of me standing in, in the, the goal. goal yeah. <laughs> That's where the abuse starts to start. Like, it's where I lose, <laughs> it's where I lose the audience mainly. <laughs> Oh man, but no, Ollie, is just, this is a fascinating episode, yeah. and and he's a really inspirational guy as well. And again, especially someone that's played right at the very top, talking about the difficult moments as well in that career as well. This is where this pod excels, really, when our guests are happy to come on and talk like that. So, absolute legend. And we're going to get into that episode very quickly. Before we do that, I believe you've got a well, I've got some mess- yeah. Facebook review. I've got Ooh. some messages on Facebook. Here we go. Do you remember Facebook? It's that old <laughs> social media. I do thing. because my fa- my Facebook profile, Jim Daily Comedy, has started to get a little boost recently oh. since I started doing some more videos. So suddenly I'm like, oh, I will use Facebook. To so social it. media, <laughs> retro social media people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love anyone on Facebook. We love anyone. Yeah, on do any you think platform. like there'd be so many like? Do you think like people that are really into TikTok will start to retro? actively go on to things like facebook because it's well, a at some little, point let's see what the olds are doing no but do you not think at some point because like social media moves so quickly that tiktok will be the facebook for the next generation so Probably, it'll be, it'll be yeah. old again soon there'll be a new one people are moving on to them. But are you, you, oh you're on tiktok are you oh all right i wonder granddad. what the next one's gonna be then it'll be some like hologram in your head or something it'll, just, it'll be you know I'm I'm going a bit too far ahead there. I think, I, I think whatever it will be, it'll be video content because that seems to be the only thing that people like. <laughs> for everyone, which is great for content. people like you, Jim. Not so yeah, good for people I like did. me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easily done, Charles. I'll, I'll help. We'll, we'll make it happen. It's very easy. Thank you. Very anyway, uh, I've got two lovely messages. One here's from Rosa Lynn Horton. She says, "Wonderful podcast, enjoying it immensely." And I've also got another Amazing. one here from Claire Paley. Maybe part of the family, like my oh, maybe. Yeah, this is a, a, a <laughs> this is an endorsement from a, a, a distant relative. She says, "Great people, and it's a must listen." So there's two nice messages there. About Amazing. Blank. Well, that is. Thank you so much for that message. It's uh, it's lovely to hear that, and lovely to hear that people are enjoying the pod and getting things out of it. Hopefully, they're going to get loads out of this episode, Giles, aren't they? They really are. 
This is the, that's kind of seamless. It wasn't too bad. That wasn't too bad. Uh, this is the one and only Ollie Phillips on the Blank Podcast. Fantastic to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Perfect. Yeah, no, great to be here. Thanks very much, fellas. Love it. No, thank you. Um, well, I think we just sort of mentioned off air where we all are in the world. And um, I know your your place of birth is Brighton, which is very, very near me. Um, did you grow up there as well? Yeah, I did, mate. Two-side boy, mate. Cut me open, bleed seagulls. That's what it's all about. Well, you're with two Palace fans. You're with two Palace fans today. So you might be regretting saying yes to this. We might have to to cancel this interview straight away. Um, No, yeah. So uh, yeah, I was born and bred in well Hove actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then I, I went to school down that way. So St Christopher's School and then Bryan College, but. Not when it was like the best co-ed school in the no, country, I think. Say, yeah. It was when it, it was when it was a pretty ordinary school, and they just let ordinary lads in at that point, of which I was definitely one. Whereas um, <laughs> now you now you have to sort of be basically Barack Obama in, in the making. Um, yeah, it's bizarre so, how it's yeah. changed, isn't it? And um, yeah, yeah, I know people who've got because um, obviously branched out of Brighton as well. Like I got some friends who live in Dubai, and their kids go there. So there's branches oh, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere, mate. The tentacles just reach far afield. <laughs> yeah. the Middle East now. So was that where you found your love of rugby? Uh, well, I, I, yeah. I mean, basically, I was useless at football. So two left feet. And so I think, well, and I was, I was a bit, I was quite a fat kid. So I was fairly boisterous as a, like, three, four-year-old. And I think my mum and my old man were fed up of me sort of clubbing my brother over the head or clubbing the kids in my nursery <laughs> over the head. So... They threw me into rugby fairly early down at Hove Mini Rugby Club, and um, and because I, I was sort of big lad and I could run around, I was I was okay at that, um, and I just sort of took to it like a duck to water. Really, I really just I love the environment, and I mean I never I'll be honest, like I never thought I'd go on and you know play professionally and whatever. I, I you know I did the classic of you know when you're nine ten year old, you imagine you're playing for England and saying all that sort of stuff, but. I didn't ever really think it would materialise into anything and until I hit my sort of, I don't know, mid to late teens or something like that, really, where it all started to well, start to become a bit of a reality. Was there, was there a moment where you suddenly thought, oh, I'm going to actually, I am good at this, I'm actually going to go pro? Or was it, is it, is it a, you're talking to two guys here who have never been professional sports people, is it a um, slower process than that? Um, well, I mean... So, so I mean, as a, as a schoolboy or whatever, you start off, you, know, you, you, know, you play counties, you play for Sussex, and as a 13, 14-year-old lad, and then when you get to 16, that's when you get, at 15, 16, you get under-16s England and all this sort of stuff. So you, you start to get a sniffer and a flavour of playing for your country, um, but no, no real sort of mentioning of... Of professional contracts at that point, and when I was playing, the clubs hadn't really got themselves organised. Now they're sort of snapping kids up at twelve, thirteen, yeah. but uh, that wasn't the case for me. And it was only really at seventeen, eighteen, where Harlequins came knocking, and I played in the Middlesex Sevens with them, um, alongside Hugo Monnier and Nick Duncan, 
we were the sort of three lads that came through at that point in time. And we won Middlesex Sevens and it became this sort of like, oh, wow, you know. You know, before all, all it was good for was me sort of getting street cred because when you got face, only your mother can love. I was, sort of, <laughs> I, was de- I was dependent on rugby as sort of for me to sort of pull the odd chick and whatever else. So um, whereas you know, then it starts to become a reality of like, oh well, somebody might you know. It starts off initiative. They give you expenses. I'm like, wow. I mean, yeah. I'd have done this for free. I'd, I'd pay to do this, yeah. and you're actually going to give me some cash. And then I'm in my first contract ever was at Newcastle Falcons and it was 600 quid a month all in <laughs> and I thought it was, wow. I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever had in my life yeah <laughs> honestly I thought it was a, I thought it was absolutely sensational um I mean I couldn't afford any food or anything like that but I just, <laughs> I just couldn't believe it <laughs> I was still living off like Tesco value beans and whatever else but it was just amazing that you get uh, as I said I would have played for free so it was um that's sort of when it materialized of like oh this could be a job and a profession and for mm. me it accelerated pretty quick. So from me signing that contract in the June, I was picked to play for England in the December. Um, wow. that's, and that, that, yeah, that's, that's a quite sort of a twenty year old, isn't it? Yeah. And also, how were you like? Because obviously, being in Newcastle, that's a long way from home. Yeah, Southerners don't go well up north. No. Day, so. Well, see, <laughs> no. my family originally from Durham, so we're kind of used to that area, but. That's, uh, where I was, that's, where I was, that's where I went to university. Yeah, so yeah, I, great. So, yeah, so they, they're from Crook. Um, okay, so they, yeah, yeah, Crook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so, um, yeah, so, funny enough, my, yeah, my grandmother was from there. My dad was brought up there, but they moved down here. But, uh, so we always had kind of, you know, summers, we always went there for, for summer holidays and I, stuff. I mean, and, I'll be honest, um, I absolutely love it. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful part, part of the world. world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Amazing fun. And, you know, truth be told, I went to Durham because I ballsed up my A-levels. I sort of, I got too interested in rugby and women rather than in grades, which was an error. I was predicted I come AAB and I came away with BBD. So that was a you know, results day was interesting dynamic with the with the family of that one. Um, and I, I was meant to go to London School of Economics to study economic history with economics. So I would have had no crack <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> um, thankfully, they they turned me down because I was meant to get AAB to get in there. Um, and Durham's entry requirements were A, B, B, but they sort of, I mean, rugby saved me a little bit. They said, look, you know, because your rugby pedigree and how you interviewed will accept you. And so I just, I was like, well, bloody hell, I better go get a proper degree here and do mm. something. So I went up north um, and it was, if I'm honest, it was the best decision I ever made in my life. As you said, beautiful part of the world, awesome university and I'd kind of, I'd had to sort of make a choice between Harlequins and my degree or education, if you like, at that point, because it had gone Pete Tong. And I chose to get my degree. And luckily, within six months or, yeah, a year, a year, Newcastle would sort of come knocking and I, I, and I joined them. So, um, so it all worked out right. But that's really interesting because obviously in other sports like football, the players aren't making university decisions at, I guess in sort of 17, 18 yeah, it's all in I know academies now have changed and they offer do offer more educational stuff alongside it but, so is rugby different in that, in that sense are you in, is that more of a thing or just because of your A-levels no I, th- I mean th- there's definitely I think yeah because the world of football you know if, if you make it if you make it properly in the premiership I mean you, well you never have to work a, a day in, again really I mean if you if you sign a contract to yeah 
whatever, 50, 100 grand a week. I mean, that's more than people make in, a, in three, four years sometimes, yeah. right? So, um, so I think because of that dynamic, every, every sort of minutiae detail is, is put under the microscope. And so, you know, as well, at the early ages of even like nine, ten, these kids are in their academies and they live and breathe it and they stay overnight and everything. You know, rugby's, rugby's not there, but it's certainly moving in that direction. Mm. But, you know, the, the money's nowhere near the same. So as a right. result, you know, when you finish playing rugby, you don't you can invent a tidy salary, but you still got to go out and find a job and another profession. And so education, I mean, I'm not saying that it's right that it's not part of you know footballing curriculum or whatever, but you, the, the need in rugby for you to have something to, to sort of fall back on and some form of educational structure is is still there so so I think that's a positive as well I think for me it was definitely a positive anyway yeah yeah because I think it's not that long ago I mean you know when I grew up watching um the likes of Brian Moore and Will Kahn and stuff they all had you know they all had jobs they were you know they were doing yeah. rugby was a kind of yeah yeah exactly yeah 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 in the good old days in the sort of amateur semi-pro days um I mean I missed that I, as in I wasn't a part of that. Rugby went professional in, I think, 98, mm-hmm. 97, 98. And then I sort of became professional in, what, 2003, 2004. So just as England won the World Cup, actually, is when I sort of signed my contract. Um, and, yeah, I mean, at that time, Johnny Wilkinson was at that Newcastle. So it was a, it was a you know, good place to be, hanging yeah. on his coattails and pretending like you're his best friend so that you know, <laughs> people people talk to you. I remember he did that. He did that that, that advert, didn't he? It was if Adidas, where he was. I think yeah, that's with Beckham. Yeah, yeah, him yeah, and Beckham. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and they were both taking free kicks for the other ball and stuff. So yeah, he was, a, he, he was an absolute wizard with a well with any kind of ball. He was a genius. I mean, it just made me incredibly jealous that his mate was David Beckham. He texted. Me. <laughs> 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 yeah, I was sitting there. Come on, like sort me out. Let me meet Beck. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Get me Beck's number. Yeah. Yeah. But it must be numbers. really inspiring to have someone like that around, though, to lift you. I can imagine that lifts everybody's games a little bit if you're somewhat, you somewhat you know someone so naturally gifted. Yeah, you know what? I mean, Wilco was obviously very talented, but naturally gifted, he he definitely wasn't okay. the most naturally gifted of blokes. He he was just honestly a total freak in terms of how he w- could apply himself. I've just never seen anyone that could be so focused and determined, and he, he just he was obsessive, properly obsessive. I mean, he talks about it now, but I mean, the things he would do in order to become the player that he was were just. Well, it was endless. Like, he would do anything. I remember, you know, after sessions, you do a few extras. You know, you go and do a bit, a bit of kicking or whatever else. You do, whatever, half an hour, an hour. And then that would be a good session. Wilco would go, and he'd create rules. So he'd be like, I don't know, I have to... I remember one used to do, used to go to the corner flag, put the ball on the corner flag where it was. So you're looking sort of perpendicular to the post, so you're only seeing, like, the very thin post. He put it on the corner flag... And he'd, he'd kick, place kick, and he had to hit the post square on from that angle, side on. Wow. Had to hit it t- wow. 20 times. And if you missed one, you'd start again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, he, you know, sometimes he'd be there six, seven hours 
just <laughs> constantly going and going and going. And mentally, he's like that's where he was just unbreakable. I mean, unbreakable. As a, as it, I guess with that like, top level sportsman, because you hear that a lot with, with in various disciplines, it, it's it's an obsession almost, isn't it? I think he was. I've never met a player the same as him. I mean, there's lots of players that were very professional, you know, verging on obsessive. He was at the unhealthy end of obsessive, <laughs> right? But but I mean, yeah. but but the result, the irony of it was, he was so he talks about it all now, right? But he was so obsessive that he could never actually be like content or happy with his performance mm-hmm. because there would always be something wrong. There was, it, it was always striving for this perfect game, which is never possible. But, you know, so you play a game on a score, 28 points, absolutely boss the whole thing, but he would have missed the kick to touch and therefore it would have been a failure. It's, it's something like that. I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. It was that it, it, it got too far for him. Whereas probably the best professional was a guy called Matt Burke. He was fullback, well, won the World Cup with Australia, fullback, cool as a cucumber on the field, even cooler off it. You know, just a good, just a good bloke, but equally super talented and got the balance right. Um, and he, luckily, uh, when I was sort of nineteen, twenty, he was on the field with me, screaming and shouting at me, and I was sort of learning from him. He, he was almost like clairvoyant. I'd be on the field, he'd be like, he'd scream like, "Oh hey!" I'm like, what, 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 what's the matter? He's like, stand there. And I'm like, I'll stand here. And he's like, this is what's going to happen. He's going to run here. They're going to come here. Then he's going to kick down to you on third face. And I'd like play out in front of me. He'd run there, run down the side, kick to me. I'm like, oh, cheers, Bertie. <laughs> <laughs> he was just unbelievable. So I learned a lot from him. And that was sort of where I, you know, like grew up or matured as a player with the likes of him and Wilco around me, which is a massive honour and privilege. Definitely. I think it's really interesting talking about that, the the idea of being satisfied, though, because I think that is something you can apply to any kind of career, really, no matter what you're doing. That you do obviously have to push yourself and try, but you you do have to sort of give yourself the breaks now and then and be. You need to, because careers are up and down. I imagine top level sports very much so, and you'll have difficult moments and stuff. And obviously, people learn from that, and you you dig in and you and you try and get better. But like, you need to give yourself the wins when you when you have a good day and be able to recognise that because that's otherwise what are you doing it for? You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, you've got to celebrate the wins. I mean, as we're talking about him, uh, Wilco talks about himself, but. 2003, England never won a World Cup, ever. Mm. And still haven't. He kicked the winning drop goal to do it all. Hero of the moment, all the rest of it, everything he worked for, strived for. You'd think, you'd think after that, I mean, you don't necessarily get drunk, but you'd think you'd have a celebration of some sort, probably for about a week. You know, where you, and some people just won't remember anything because they got so drunk, and others just celebrate, right? Mm. Wilco yeah. went to his room, played guitar. Didn't, really? didn't go out, didn't do anything, yet. and was actually critical of like what he'd done in the final. And I was, and he's, I remember him telling me, and I was like, mate, that's you know, surely that's not where you. That's what this is. That isn't what this is all about. I mean, yeah, you've just won like the pinnacle of our sport, mm. yeah. and you were actually the main man that's done it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah, okay, fine. I mean, you, I don't know, you might have scuffed the kick here or 
not a missed a tackle there, but you've won it, you've done it. Like um, as you said, Jim, like you make mistakes as you go through, right? That's part of learning, and that's what experience is all about. But he just he, he couldn't he couldn't celebrate. He'd done it, and it was like, oh, that box is ticked. But this wasn't right. This wasn't right. I've got to get that right the next time. Next time. Next time. And you know, it's it's a real shame. I mean, it's such a shame because he achieved some amazing things in his career. Um, and if you don't, as you say, if you don't celebrate them, it's it's about sort of everyone always says it like enjoying the journey and all that sort of stuff. But it's really mm. true. Like if you don't don't celebrate the fact that I mean, you started off not being able to do something and you finished off by being able to do something. Like it's that process in the middle of wow, like this is what I did and this is how I broke it down and this is where I got it wrong and wow, like that whole learning experience is what makes it special. The end product is. Like just vindication of the effort, yeah. If you like, but um, but yeah, he, he just couldn't. He just really struggled to celebrate that because he was so obsessive about the perfect game, I guess. Yeah, which you yeah. say is it, it's In, completely impossible. elusive. You can't have the perfect game. Yeah. <laughs> never. Yeah. It'll, it'll, and so it will just never happen. It will never because there'll always be something. Mm. You can always do yeah. something better, right? Yeah. yeah. You kicked the ball 50, 50 yeah. yards to win the game, or you could have kicked it 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You'll find something, won't you, if you're looking There's for it There's always something, enough. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. As you say, just being happy about the process, the outcome, celebrating that. Because uh, I talk about this quite a lot, but I, the irony of all this stuff is, and this is, doesn't mean this is the case for everyone, but for, for me, all my greatest experiences ever in my life are shared experiences. I never yeah. go, oh, Charles, Jim, let me tell you about this story I'm on when I was on my own. Yeah. Right? No one ever starts that story. It's like, oh, do you remember when we won a World Cup together? Or do you remember when yeah. we went out and you got so drunk you fell over and da 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 like it's it's always shared experience because I think that's what makes it sort of special. And I think it's it's about yeah. like really enjoying those opportunities and those moments that you get to sort of look back on and go, Wow, do you remember when we did that? I mean, can you believe that we did that? Or do you remember when we did a podcast and blah blah blah? Like it's just that, yeah. It's that shared moment, whatever it is, how big or small doesn't really matter. But that's what makes it all sort of special. And it, and like and like it's it's like telling yourself like it's okay to enjoy those moments. I don't know if it's a, a British thing, maybe, but like I know we get very awkward about sort of like. Um, or I certainly do, that maybe someone might think I'm being arrogant or, or, or whatever about my mm. success or something. And so you don't want to be seen to be throwing it in people's faces or any of that kind of stuff. So you just don't enjoy it or celebrate it to avoid that kind of thing. And same with compliments. Someone gives you a compliment and you're like, oh, no, actually it wasn't that good kind of thing. But it's okay. Like People want you to have a good time. People want you to enjoy what you do. Pe- people sometimes want to live vicariously through you yeah. and your successes, and that's okay. So it's, it's like telling yourself it's okay to enjoy this moment. It's okay to accept that compliment and be like, Oh yeah, no, it was cool. Thank you, but I, I don't know if yeah, I mean, it's quite if it's a British thing or a human thing. I think it, well, it's a bit of both. I think it's very British, right? But I think it's also you've we've all probably done it too, where you know someone does celebrate it. Or like, look at that arrogant knob, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, like oh, wind your neck in or something like 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 very British thing to put somebody down to. Mm. Whereas I don't know in America, it's like uh, I, I don't know. They learn how to ride their bike, and it's like they're, you know, they're going to be <laughs> Carl, you know, Carl, whatever his name is, Carl for a, the, the, you know, I'm the world superbike champion yeah, or something yeah, like that, right? Yeah. Like Frampton, Frampton. Frampton, yeah. Well, I, I, I didn't know if he was the boxer, but anyway. Oh, yeah, no, he no, is. no, he might be. Yeah. I, 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 I,
So I just think, you know, whereas the, whereas the Americans are really good at sort of yeah. shouting about how good they are, and, and they actually celebrate it, like, you know, the land of yeah. opportunity, the land we could be anything you want to be. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think, but the irony of all this, it, it's, it's only because it happened on Monday, but was, I was friends with a, the um, Caroline Flack, you know, the lady who was on yeah. Love Island, who unfortunately sort of took a life. And she, I remember she saying something in one of her tweets or whatever, and it always stayed with me. And it, she said, look, in a world where you can be anything you want, be nice. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it always just stick, sticks to me. Because like, so I used to be that bloke who'd be like, I don't know, jealous of if somebody achieved something, but like, oh, what, I'm not bad doing that. Or, mm. you know, mind you, you know, you're just so arrogant or... Or you maybe delight a little bit in when somebody failed or whatever else. Whereas I'm like, okay, well now I just try and celebrate everything that people do, and it's and I try and I don't always live up to it, but but you know I try and you know so in a world we we could be anything, be nice, and um and that's it's sort of a bit of a philosophy now that I try and live by. So, anyway, that's a bit of off on a tangent. No, not at all. No, no, and it's ideal tangent for yeah, us. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we like tangents. But uh, yeah, no, it's it's so true. And I think um, I think when we encourage others and are, and are, and are nice and kind and compassionate to others, then then we we end up being nice and kind and compassionate to ourselves in those moments as well, you know. And actually, like like we say, give ourselves those moments to enjoy. It's not just about you know giving it to other people, but actually yeah, allowing I mean, ourselves I've, them. I've, I'm not sure if it stems from maybe a societal thing or maybe a British thing. I don't know, right? But there's there's always been this. There is a general impression of like, well, you can always do more, hmm. right? I mean, you could always make you can always make a tenner, but you could make a hundred. If you make a hundred, you could make a thousand. If you make a thousand, you could make a million, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's always like you could always do more. There's always more. There's always more. There's always more. And you know, as a result of that, we we go through sort of our process with quite a critical lens on everything we do. So it's yeah. not like, oh, I did really well to make that 100 quid there because I did this, this, and this. It's like uh, the approach, all the, in fact, this is ironic, all the worst coaches I ever worked with playing-wise would be, you'd win a game and all we would review on the Monday would be all the things we did badly. Mm. Even though we won the game, be like, this is what we did wrong, this is what we did wrong, this is what we did wrong. It's like, well, look, we won the game, so we must have done something right. So yeah. why don't we talk about all the things we do right? So that then it's a, a mindset shift of like you're focusing on all the things that you do super well, reinforcing those so you keep reproducing positive outcomes. Um, and I found that you know a lot of the, the worst coaches and the people were always the ones that were, I'm doing me wrong, you, you want to keep improving, of course, but, but the, the ones where you just focus on all the things that you did badly. Um, mm. And and I, I found that was a, a quite a big psycholo- psychological shift in how I approach games, how I approach my teammates. Um, I read a book. Uh, it was called "Decide to Win," and it was quite. It helped me really change my sort of outlook on like playing, being captain, you know, leading all that sort of stuff. It was, and and the philosophy of it was there are loads of people that hate losing and there are a few, only a few people that love winning and ultimately the outcome is the same but the yeah. process and the if you like the enjoyment factor is very different the philosophy of like I just love winning so you'll try everything you'll explore different avenues you'll you'll always be, if you like be inquisitive and adventurous in how you explore different 
routes and avenues and um, opportunities of of winning in inverted commas whatever that means for somebody whereas if you sort of hate losing or you just fear losing your whole mindset is always focused around just just doing better than whoever you're against just being that like extra inch in front of them and it means that you sort of never really fulfill your proper potential because your actual benchmark is just against somebody else or another team and that's all you're that's all you're going against and I found that quite an interesting philosophy a, a, you know, philosophical outlook on, on life but on playing in particular it's quite deep for a Friday lad so sorry we like that, that, that Joe you know, as you're talking now I was actually thinking about Crystal Palace and sorry you want to do Every what you're thinking, get. Brian Love winning and Palace just <laughs> to be fair, last season, first season, they finished above us in the uh, in the top flight. So you know uh, we'll give I, them that I, one. I remember a ridiculous story that is obviously horrendous, but you know all the you know, Palace Brighton when they play against each other, and it was in the playoff. I'm sure it was in the playoff to come up yeah, to yeah. the Prem. Here we go. And, yeah, and didn't didn't a fan, either a Brighton fan or a Palace fan, I don't know which way, break into the change room and. Yeah, a, it yeah, wasn't crap. a fan. <laughs> I, lo- I love, I love, I love when stories do this that they get the extra level on it and go. It wasn't a yeah, fan. It was, it was a player. It, no, so it was actually. Well, the the, the, rumor, the is... rumor from the Palace side, and this came from Paddy McCarthy, who was captain at the time during a live uh, evening, I think, was that it was the Palace coach driver who'd had a dodgy something stomach problem, got to the to, got the coach there before all the players rushed in. Used the toilet, had a had a very bad experience, and there wasn't able to clean it up properly or, or, or something. So it ended up what? not looking great. So then the players come in and they're like, oh, "Who's done this in the changing room?" Well, it, it, it was must be Brian. It must be Brian. <laughs> must be Brian, and it must. And weirdly, yeah, it must be a mind. You know, uh, um, there, uh, there was a game it was Gus Poyer at one point. Gus Poyer, <laughs> who's the manager? Charlie, Charlie Oatway. I heard it was Charlie Oatway. Come on, lads, don't, don't ruin the story. Now. I mean, it's much better that it was Gus Poyer going and yeah. having a turn <laughs> on the on the on the Crystal Palace changing room floor. Their, their bus driver just had a dodgy Ruby Murray, and that's yeah, it. Exactly. You know? Yeah. But what's great is like obviously they, they didn't that none of them this came out like years later, so none of them yeah. knew. So they generally thought it was Poyer or Oatway. So Holloway, the palace manager at the time, used it in his like, yeah, he's um, like I don't need to do a team talk, his, lads. He's like, Yeah, look what they've done, look what they've done. And, that, and of course it worked. Palace won 2 0 on the night. So weirdly they turned it into a you know, his team talk. What was the bus driver doing? Just sit in the corner going, they yeah. don't know. <laughs> they don't don't know. Wasn't me, lads. <laughs> <laughs> they don't know. They don't know I'm the key to your success, but they don't know. <laughs> yeah, we got yeah, we got promoted. We'll do it every game in the Premier League. They've saved 38 times next season. Maybe, maybe Holloway just engineered it. He said, look, drives. Go in ahead. Yeah, yeah. Have a crap on the floor. I need something bigger. <laughs> eat this. Eat this. Honestly, I'll make a big thing out of it. <laughs> oh, oh, man. What was I going to say? No, I was going to say about the shift that we've had that last season from Roy Hodgson, who was very much someone who probably had, and I, I say this with a lot of love for him, because I, I think he's one of the best friends we've had, but more of a negative mindset towards playing. And it yeah. was not losing, like basically, had, not losing. Not losing, sorry. A bit like when yeah. we had Sam Allardyce, who used to talk about respecting the point, you know, so it was all about this. And now Patrick Vieira's come in, and it's the exact opposite. Palace are playing to win, and the, the whole mindset's changed, and the style's changed. And actually, it's, it is working fantastically. And last season was probably the most enjoyable season as a Palace fan that I can ever remember yeah. watching. Um, but I understand why some people, maybe at high level sport, might be wary about that kind of thing. Because I guess a lot, a lot's at stake, so they might it might yeah, be safer. Yeah. To that but other the, mindset. The, the best, the best, 
and from a footballing perspective, and this is I don't know these individuals very well, right? But just from looking at their outward approach, which for me is the transition from Mourinho to now Guardiola and yeah. Klopp. Yeah, and I, and yeah. I would say that yeah. Guardiola and Klopp are in that. Let's go out and just express ourselves and really yeah. love winning, right? Just be adventurous and play the best football that we possibly can. We keep the ball. We just want the ball all the time, all yeah. the time. Yeah. Whereas Mourinho would be like, let's set up to just frustrate everybody. Here. Yeah. And then when the chance comes, boom. Right? And both are really effective. And Mourinho won loads, right? I'm not saying you don't win with that sort of mindset. But I know what I would rather watch, right? And I know what I would rather play in as yeah. an environment. And... You know, I think as a you know as a legacy at the end of it all, cool. You've got all the, the trophies and whatever else, but can you honestly turn around and say, "Oh, that was the best version of me"? Don't get me wrong. There's loads of players that would be able to say that under Bruno, and because that's probably what they're really skilled at was just being frustrating, annoying, and defensive mindset because that was their capability. But but you know, the best talent, I think, if you if you give them that license to to be them. Is, yeah. is pretty potent. Yeah, and you, I, you yeah sorry, Jim. I was going to say, gone. you could argue that that brings the best out in the players as well, you know. They, yeah, they, exactly, they play yeah, to their yeah. highest ability. But everyone too, like, not just them, it, I think the ripple effect across fans, you know, supporters, management, the whole the whole club, right? It's a, it's that, I don't know, it becomes more that mindset that everyone would have heard, at, you know, whatever it was, in NASA, when they went to that, you know, the janitor, and they said, what are you doing? And he's cleaning the toilets. And he said, I'm putting a man on the moon. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. It, it's yeah. that, like, you feel genuinely like you're contributing towards a bigger cause and, and it's such a positive environment to be in. And I feel like, well, I don't know, I'm not in, in amongst it all, but I just think that that approach to things is much more positive as, as, a, as a whole, right? Mm. As, a, as a general contributor to everything. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I wonder if that is a, a, that mindset is changing in, in sport. Because you look at someone like Mourinho in the last couple of years, struggled really to get a lot of success at his clubs with his technique. And, and as you say, Klopp and Guardiola are doing very well. And Vieira coming in at Palace. And I wonder if the mindset's changing. But I go, go back to when you were playing and you, you were sort of saying like, you know, that the coaches would look at the negative. Because remember when I was playing football, there was like two types of player. There was the player that like w- would re- react to being shouted at, react to being told you're doing badly. And then there was the arm round the shoulder kind of player. Yeah. And I was definitely an arm round the shoulder. I needed someone to say, look, mate, you've yeah. done so well today. Look at that passing. That was great. As soon as they said like, what are you doing? You're rubbish today. I would just like, shrink into my shell. Yeah. Do you think that's changed? Or, or, uh, no. Does no, that no. stuff... No, no, it's still the same. No, I mean, that's human behaviour, right? There's different types. The, you know, the, the key and uh, the key skill set as a coach or a manager is, is understanding those nuances of like, I don't know, Giles used to bang his head against a brick wall and me tell him he's, he's crap because that's how he reacts. But Jim, I've got to give him love and lucky bum taps and whatever else. <laughs> like that. but, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, that's how this pod works, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, that's if you like... Individual human psychology, human behaviour. Where I think the the best and the worst coaches, like if I were to sort of explain it, would be like, how do you focus on people's like super strengths rather than areas yeah. where they can go? So I don't know. We all get selected. Let's just say for I have a a bizarre moment. I decide to play for Palace, right? So <laughs> so we all get picked to go to play for Palace. We've all got some X factor that's got us in to play for Palace at the beginning, right? So we start off. Like this, 
our super strength and like all these other bits that I don't know, you might be brilliant at being a striker, scoring goals, but you're not so good at defending. Yeah. Right? So if I as a coach say to you all the time, that oh, awesome Jim, thanks very much for coming in. Like, we know you're good at scoring goals, but like you're not so good at defending. So like, over the next you've only got twenty four hours in your day. Of the twelve hours that we spend training, I want you to spend at least nine, ten on defending. Yeah. So your super strength that got you in in the first place starts to diminish because you don't spend any time on it. And the thing that you're pretty rubbish at and you don't really like, you start to improve a bit, but you end up in the middle, right? You end yeah. up somewhere here, and then you get fired. And they sack you in your contract, and they're like, well, mate, why have you sacked me? Like, I might get I, transferred I, to Brighton. I don't, you get transferred to Brighton, right? <laughs> and they say, well, why, why, why am I transferred to Brighton? I, like, well, look, I mean... I mean, you turn up here and you score four goals. You don't score any anymore. Okay. But, yeah, but I don't let any in. Yeah, but, I mean, you're a striker. We need you to score goals, right? Yeah. Whereas if, if you turned up and you spent your 12 hours every day of like, okay, well, now I don't, I don't score four a game. I score six a game. And, oh, you let one in every blue moon. Oh, well, you know, we can manage that. Six and one's much better than none and occasionally one or whatever else. Like, I think, and that, I saw that. Time and time again. And in rugby, a classic one is weight. Right. So all these young lads come in, 18, 19, or whatever else, and they'll say to them, you know, they'll come in, they'll do some load of X Factor because they're really fast and mobile around the park, or they're good at the breakdown. Da, da, da. And then some idiot coach will turn around and say, oh, Ollie, yeah, you're, you're great at this, but like, we need you to put weight on. And you're too small, you're 80 kilos, you've got to put some weight on because you're going to get injured, you're going to do whatever else. So they spend all their time eating 50,000 calories a day, <laughs> doing weights, and doing whatever, and they end up in the middle at the end because they can't move around the park anymore as fast as they used to. They can't go onto the ball as fast as they used to. And at the end, they get sacked. And they go, why did you get, why am I getting sacked? And so you're too slow, you're not nimble around the field anymore. And you're like, yeah. mate, th- this has all happened because you've sat down to this young lad and told him, that the reason he's not going to make it in the game or in the things he needs to work on are not actually the things he's really good at. And the reason why he's signed in yeah. the first place, it's stuff that, I mean, you're creating this sort of like dream scenario of like, oh, well, he's going to be super mobile at 19 stone. It just doesn't work, right? So that, that's for me is the biggest criticism I used to see. And these poor kids then like, oh, I'm not, I've missed my dream and whatever else. Mm. It's just one person's... yeah opinion and cook-up that's, that's ruined their whole psyche and dynamic around it all. Um, and and that, that happens time and time again. So luckily, when I joined Newcastle, unfortunately, the, he's passed away now, but I, there was a guy called Steve Black who was our sort of mentor. He was the bloke behind Wilco. He actually did a load of work with Newcastle United and he went with Clarkie at Fulham and a few other places. Huddersfield Town he went to. Oh. And um, Sunderland he worked with. And he the first thing he put on my peg, first game ever that I played was he was just said maximize your strengths, manage your weaknesses. And I was like, what are you talking about, mate? Yeah. What are you talking about? And he just sort of said, just live by that. Just said, he said, yeah, you know all that stuff because you know Rob Andrew told us all this stuff. I remember he came over to me, Rob Andrew's like, gave me like seventeen points before I ran on the field. Like I got to do this. I was like, I don't remember any of this. Like quit <laughs> and then PhD right all up my arm. <laughs> And Blackie came over and said, you know what he just said to you? And I said, yeah, what? He said, what did he say to you? I said, I don't know, like this, this, this. He said, forget it. Throw it out the window. I was like, what do you mean forget it? He's told me I've got to do this. He said, when you get the ball in your hand, score. Every time you get the ball, score. 
Yeah. So what do you mean? So that's what we've been brought into because we saw X Factor. When you play for the 21s, you scored three hat-tricks in a row. So when you go to the field, score a hat-trick. I'll tell you what, Raj, you won't care anything about anything else. Mm. And that's all, and that's, I mean, so I didn't want it to become a weakness, right, in the game so that then it, it became a glaringly obvious thing of like, I couldn't do something, right? But So I did work on areas of my game, of course, but if every time I hit the field, I was electric with a ball in my hand and I scared the life out of defenders because that was my job as a winger, I'm, I'm going to get picked. I'm going to get signed. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get signed if I don't do any of that. And, bah, you know, every time there's someone around me, I make my tackle because I don't actually deliver any X factor to the team. So it was just, I was just fortunate that I had the right coach because mm. I was like a bit like you, Jim. I wanted love and bum taps and whatever else. Um, and, and, and he knew that. He knew, he knew how to sort of manage me, and, and that was great. And I see it go wrong so many times in sort of young athletes mm. now, that, that element. Because then you could also... Especially as a young person, because you're, you know, you're, it's a vulnerable age and state to be in anyway. But you can really quickly then think you're rubbish at something when you're not, and it's, it's a perspective thing. If someone's telling you you've got to work on these other things and you're not very good at them, but you're amazing at this particular thing, then you're still a good player. Mm. But it's really quick, and, I, and again, that can be translated into any industry. That if you're not sort of focusing on the thing you're good at and the thing you love, you can really quickly think you're rubbish at something when you're not, and yeah. that is a really. Uh, you know, a uh, difficult place to be in. And that's the role that coaches play, right? I'll be honest. That, that's where they can be incredibly beneficial or incredibly detrimental yeah. to, a, to a person's development. And when I say use the word coach, I don't just mean it in sport. It could be anything. It could be in a working environment, right? Yeah. And if more often than not, it's either the, it's what they've been conditioned to over their course of professionalism, in sport, in business, or whatever else. So they've been habitualized to being hypercritical or yeah. or blase, whatever it is, right? Um, and then at the same time, they then uh, um, mirror that onto the individual, right? They mirror that yeah. onto, onto their that this person coming in of like, well, if we focus on all the things you rubbish out, or I get on your case, or and actually the irony of it is, the physical and technical elements of it are everyone's kind of in the ballpark anyway. Yeah. I mean, there's a few. Obviously, you can always, as an 18-year-old, you're going to get faster, bigger, stronger as you go through anyway, as you mature naturally. But, yeah, okay, you could do some elements of that. Definitely. But that's kind of easy stuff. The the, the, the the really great coaches are the ones that are like, okay, how do I make sure that my behavior and the messaging that I give to Jim is exactly what Jim needs so yeah. that he's at the best of his ability every single day? And actually, I need to do something slightly different for Giles. And and as a result, you know what? These two are going to be sensational on the on the football field, or they're going to be sensational for my business because I am, if you like, focusing on the sort of mental, emotional, psycholo- psychological side of things that makes them want to go to war for me. Right? Yeah. They they want to do everything for me because they fear they feel that I resonate with them and that I understand them whereas so many coaches think it's about technical think yeah. it's about really dotting I's and crossing T's and yeah okay there is an, there is, of course there's detail that you've got to make sure it doesn't become a disaster you don't want someone to sign a cheque 
with an extra zero on because they've you know messed it up. But in general, people aren't that stupid. But you know, all the time, it's about and and equally, if they're emotionally invested in something, they'll they'll want to double check and go to to, to hell and back for you. I was going to ask you about. Um, obviously, you touched on being a captain and that leadership on the on the pitch. Did did that come naturally to you? Was that something that you did from a younger age, or um, was it something you sort of developed later on? And also, having those that set of skills, were you able to implement some of the things you've just been saying about you know, obviously the coach um, has the last word, but you were able to sort of coerce people into doing various things on the on the pitch that you could see could be done better. Yeah. So. No, ironically, actually, so some of my, I would say, some of my captaincy, I would have, if I were to critique myself, I would say was, like, really good in in the fact that I tried to create an environment that was so fun and engaging. So I remember when we were, an example, when we went to Wellington, England had never, ever, ever won a tournament in New Zealand ever. So we're the first team to ever do that in 2009. Amazing. And we beat New Zealand in the final. We went 17-0 down and we won it 19-17 on the wow, hotel, right? Wow. Fucking hell. What Ep- way to win it. Epic experience. Like, by far one of the best experiences of my life. That was on the... The tournament was a Saturday-Sunday. On the Thursday, this was totally out of the rule book. I didn't even tell the coach about this, whatever. But I arranged for the Harley-Davidson owners group to come to our hotel... 35 Harley Davidsons pulled up, all skull and crossbones or whatever, and they put all the players on the back of their motorbikes, and we went for a tour all around Wellington. Oh, my God, wow. That culminated in them driving down the the main high street of Wellington, revving all the engines up and setting off every car alarm as they went down. (laughs) And we had, you know, England blazoned across our backs, right? So now, when I think of it now, I'm like health and safety risk all over the yeah, place. Say, players yeah, on the yeah. players on the back of motorbikes, like absolute <laughs> disaster, right? But the I don't know the unity, the fun element of that of like wow, what a wicked experience, and how cool was that? And da 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 meant that we were just so relaxed and we were so up for it, and we were just so uni- united as a team that when we went seventeen nil down, like no one even panicked, no one even. You know, and in front of 55,000 people, everyone hates us. Obviously, with all the legacy and history of England never even got to a final, never even won anywhere. It was it was just epic, if I'm honest. It was just incredible. And I'm not saying, it. you know, everyone go get on Harley-Davidson's and zoom around everywhere. But, like, so that element of my leadership, I would say, was really good. Like, okay, how do we just create as much fun and, and, and as relaxed an environment as possibly as possible where I was probably pretty naive and a bit immature and it only happened only got better at this I think actually when once I'd retired and I did some of my other bits of like Everest and sailing around the world and all this sort of stuff where I in my naivety as an England captain you know, I I was just I was pretty tell you know I was like screaming and shouting and like you know we got to do this and you know and, and to be honest Looking back on it, it was it was just pretty easy. I mean, I probably was talking a load of old nonsense, if I'm honest. But you know, you you got to remember it was a load of blokes, all the same age, all the same marital status, all the same sort of not identical, but you know, legacy stuff of like playing as a kid and coming all the way through to play for England. You have this carrot of England. You know, if you can't really lead in that environment, you 
you're pretty buggered, right? I mean, you've got everything that's in your favour. So, you know, the, the, the stark contrast for me was when I went to go and sail around the world and I was on the Great Britain boat. And I was a late entry into this. And all these people had you know, mortgaged their house. Some of them were doing it for loved ones that they'd lost and, you know, invested every pound that they had in this they've been preparing for like two three years when i was on like when i bowled up like five weeks to go it was like right come on we've got to win they were like why have we got to win i'm not bothered about winning yeah. i said what do you mean not bothered about winning they're like well there's one woman who's like well i've got my husband's urn who you know ashes here who he died from cancer and i promised him i'd sprinkle his ashes in every single one of the world's oceans i don't care about winning yeah. i just want to make sure i don't spill him over the side yeah you know, and then there was another woman, she was 74, Jill. She was like, well, look, I want to have one last experience before I die. I want to get thrown around the, the deck and whatever else. I was like, please don't have that ex- last experience. <laughs> yeah. On the boat, right? yeah, I don't want that. Yeah. But you know, it made me realise, actually, no one, you know, what my goal and my aspiration is, it's not actually always the same. So I need to take a lot of time here to listen to what other people want recognize what people, other people's motivations are, what makes them move, and then play to that. Make sure I give them that. And then they might be invested in what I want. They might be interested in supporting around, okay, Ollie, how do we help you win or stand on your head or whatever else it is that I want to do? Um, and that was definitely a sort of a bit of an aw- a wake-up call for me. Yeah, I guess in between what you're saying there and then getting to the 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 other stuff... Um... And I guess a big moment for you was your retirement because you retired quite early, didn't you? Yeah. Through injury. 29. Um, 29. So what rugby players normally play, to, it's the same as football, sort of mid-30s. Yeah. If, I mean, if you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, in general, if you're lucky, you'll get to sort of, you know, 33, 34. Some go a bit beyond and others a bit early like me. And and that obviously, I'm, guess, I'm guessing at that age, you're, just, you're not, you're just you're not even thinking about retirement, not ready for it. So it must have been a, a shock at the time, and I, and I and I guess then it sort of brought on a lot of other sort of deeper feelings. Yeah, massive. Yeah, yeah, big shock. And I think if you like, I'd got institutionalised and a bit conditioned to some of the negative elements of of sport, which were limelight and you know being a somebody in inverted commas and whatever else. And I, when that you know, I'd spent what twelve years as a professional athlete and then as a somebody and being in the press and captain of England and all this sort of stuff and then I was injured and I was like well well, who cares about him now you know, there's somebody else there's always somebody else there's a new captain there's a new there's a new world player of the year there's always, there's always something there's another world cup winner so that and I I, I'm, I guess it was waving. I was in denial or a sort of refusal. I, I was chasing after more and more recognition. So, you know, I retired, got injured, and I was like, right, well, let's go and do this sale. So I left within five weeks of getting injured, basically, wow. and retiring. Um, and then I was like, oh, I, I was like, you know, the face of this race. So it was like, oh, I'm getting all the plaudits and. And I'd create this delusions of grandeur that I thought I'd go and do this race and I could come back and my injury would suddenly be recovered. And I'd go to the Olympics as a result of that. And then, you know, I sort of chased attention and whatever else. And look, I wasn't I wasn't a boozer. I wasn't into drugs. So, you know, but I was into women and I was in, like, I wanted affection. I wanted attention. and But it was really unhealthy. 
unhealthy because I, I, I was never, nothing was ever enough. I was never satisfied. So then you, you, you end up hurting people and hurting yourself and all the rest of it, right? So, so yeah, it, it was probably not, it took a while, right? It took probably two, two and a half years before I was suddenly like, oh, God. I'd still introduce myself. I remember I got a job at PwC in 2015, and I, I would introduce myself for about two years after that as like, oh, hi, I'm Ollie. I used to play rugby. Yeah. It was my whole identity. It was everything who I was. And I thought it gave me credibility. It, you know, it was my persona. It was my, you know, why somebody would be more interested in me at that point rather than just who I was. So everything about me was that. And and it, it was, as I said, it wasn't for about two and a half years until I suddenly was like, oh, I'm not a rugby player anymore. And, you know, I'm going to have to transition over and do something else here. And I'd come from being like a, a specialist, an expert in my field to now having to go and learn something else where I wasn't an expert in my field anymore. And I was my early thirties and I'd got conditioned to being, you know, really good at something and people are praising me and whatever else. I didn't want to be a novice at whatever yeah. else I was going to go into next. And I really struggled with that. I really, really struggled with that acceptance and that transition of like, okay, got to start over again here now and, and just accept, you know, we, we, it's going to be a bumpy ride and you know, at the end it will all come okay. But I just, uh, I really struggled with that initially. Especially as, um, cause I struggle with the idea of like the age milestone. So in football, in football, I guess in sport, you're told like 30 years, 30 years old. So if you're starting again at early thirties, you feel like you're like way behind everybody else when actually 30 is still very, very young. And I'm 38 now, so I've got like 40 creeping up. I'm sort of having the same sort of feelings like, oh God, what have I done? What am I going to do? Where's my life going? What benchmarks have I got? But actually, again, 40 is very young. You've still got so many years left to do. But I don't know if it's a sport thing that could like um, mould your mind into thinking if you're not doing amazing things by these benchmarks, you're behind somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe some of that's linked to like just physical attributes, right? And just in terms of the, you know, the functionality of your body. Like when you're in your teens and your 20s, you can do it a hell of a lot more and more frequently than you can at yeah. 40. And as a result, people label that as like, oh, well, you know, you're not as useful <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, as you were or whatever else. Um, and then that perception just builds in your own mind, right? And because, because it's, a, it's an immediate sensation, right? So I don't know. If you and I go for a sprint race now in our our forties, or I'm thirty nine, so nearly forty as well. But like our late thirties, we're not going to be able to do it as often or be anywhere near as fast as we were as a eighteen year old or twenty year old. Yeah. And we feel that, right? We can noticeably feel that, even though we think psychologically, I'm still as fast as I was at eighteen. I still feel the same as I did when I was twenty. Yeah. And that starts to build up all these barriers in our mind of like, well, I can't. I can't go sprint. I can't go sprint anymore because because I wasn't as good as I used to be. So therefore, there's no point doing it. Yeah. And and actually, the to some of the conversations we had earlier, it's let it's a it's hard, easier said than done, right? But it's less about the outcome of like, oh wow, well my sprint is now still ten point five what I used to do as a as a eighteen year old or whatever else, and more just about the process of like I just like running. Mm, yeah, I just really like running, and I'm quite like. Quite like that feeling of the wind in my face and whatever else, and 
like and so it's about the process rather than the outcome and i think that's quite hard for people to get their heads around because you know we are so outcome driven everything yeah. in society in our and us is all about well have we gone from a to b has it you know rather yeah. than well what have we learned and even if we didn't get to b what, what how what could enable us to maybe get to b next time and that we've learned that we can get better at and it's sort of relishing that that part of it which i think people find pretty challenging right and um because so men- mentally you're still the same person you still feel the same way but you're still doing well and, and also if you if you do something and you're so right, it is really difficult to to change your focus on that but if you do something because you enjoy it and you love it well you probably will get to b and if you don't get to b you'll probably get to c or d which is still progress but it might be somewhere else but you you still get better by the yeah. sheer virtue of doing it and probably quicker because you're enjoying it rather than doing something, sure. thinking about the outcome and thinking about how you get better at it. Uh, but that, uh, I, I, that is a hard mind shift. I do get that. Yeah. And that's what I noticed, if I'm honest, from my, let's say, I don't know, rugby career to post my rugby career. Like I've done lots of things that I loved afterwards now of like, I don't know, I cycled across America with my wife and some, as a race, right? As a family. We didn't win the race. No, near the race. Equally, I'm not harbouring any ambitions of being Geraint Thomas or you know, you know, Lance Armstrong or anything like that in terms of cyclists, right? Whereas in my rugby career, if if I was going to do something, it wasn't worth doing it unless I was going to be the best of it. Yeah. And so ultimately, I missed out on loads of things because I thought, well, I'm not very good at that, so I won't do it. Right. Um Whereas now I quite just enjoy the the process of, you know, as I said, we we did manage to cycle across America. Were we the fastest? No. Was am I going to be a professional cyclist? No. But was it a cool experience? Yes, it was. Yeah, amazing. It was absolutely epic. It was an unbelievable journey, an amazing process, and obviously a great sense of achievement at the end of it all. Um, yes. And and I think that's the if i'm not aware near the finished article but that was the major transition that i noticed to me which was i don't know becoming less outcome driven less com- competitive around certain things i'm still competitive beast but just actually enjoying you know where i'm taking my body my mind and whatever else rather than worrying about like is this better than everybody else and if it isn't well there's no point doing it because that became a, a pretty negative thing for me and as a result I couldn't I'd, I'd miss out on loads of things because I talked myself out of it yeah and you could argue doing those amazing experiences like you know you've done all sorts of things if you've been trying to be competitive, you may not have enjoyed those experiences as much. You may be have not have taken in those experiences as much doing it. And actually just being involved in those things in the first place is amazing. But that's, you know, it's, it comes back to your point, Jim, originally of like the societal pressure of not succeeding in inverted commas, right? So everyone's judgment is like, have you made the most money or have you run the fastest time? And if you haven't, it's like, oh, look at that. Look at that bloke. Isn't that, isn't that ridiculous? Like he's like a minute behind everybody else. Yeah. And then as a result, you feel a fool, right? You feel a failure and this perception of like, oh, I don't, I don't want people to 
think of me in that way because it's pretty uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable when you yeah. think people are laughing at you or whatever else because you know you've tried something and you've not been very good at it in in terms of you know you're not the the fastest or the quickest or the strongest or the make the most money or whatever else. Whereas, and that's hard. That's a hard transition to make. Of like, you know what? I'm not doing this for anybody else <laughs> except for me. You know. Yeah. And so, actually, I'm running. It's like that Eric the Eel thing. Yeah. You know, the swimmer of like, well, if you if you really cared about everybody else and their perception, you'd never have got in the pool. Because mm. yeah. he'd have known. I'm nowhere near as fast as Michael Phelps or whatever else. And I'll, he'll have finished and had a shower and got changed but, yeah. you know, before I've actually finished the race. But And so most people just wouldn't get in the pool. Yeah, They just wouldn't even do it, even though they love swimming. Mm. And, then, and that's the that's the, probably the sorry state, the sad state of like what comes as an outcome of, if you like, societal pressure and competition now is that so many people don't do things because of the way they feel others will react to them, their perception of that. And as a result, it's, yeah, it's, it's debilitating, it's nerve-wracking, and they miss out on something that might feel pretty fulfilling for them at the end of it all. So true. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's like sort of the guy that comes last in the 100 metres final. Everyone's like, oh, well, he's not very good. He got to the 100 metre final. He's yeah. probably quite good at running. Of course, yeah. And well, it's so, like yeah. when, you know, if you do, uh, you know, if you've done a marathon or a long race or anything like that, everyone, the first thing that people will ask you is, what time did you do it in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, where did you come? And you think, well, actually, I've, I started not telling people what the time I'm doing. I just said, oh, and I'll well, be honest I did with it. you, it's actually yeah. harder to run for five and a half hours yeah. than it is for two, right? I mean, two, you're on your feet for two hours and yeah. you're done. You put your feet Actually, keeping going and mentally, physically, keeping your mind, body ticking over for five and a half hours is so much harder. Yeah, it's horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> Speaking from experience. But, so the, you know, the irony of it is people who take it longer, they should be getting even more praise. Yeah, like, well, absolutely. Well, well done. I mean, Jesus Christ, because I, you know, I would have quit at four hours or I don't know, whatever, yeah. right? So, like, but, but, but you're right. It's because everything is, uh, can we be... Bigger, faster, stronger, richer, whatever else it is. It's all geared towards more, 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 rather than actually the process of it. Mm. It's just the process and enjoyment of it all. Uh, do you know, it's, it's, it's so funny on this podcast how like, we, we have guests that come on that tell us stuff when we need to hear it, because this is really timely for me, because I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe next week to do a, a month's run at the Fringe doing a stand-up show. Awesome. And uh, really looking forward to it. But also filled with those feelings of anxiety and is anyone going to turn up? Is it going to go well? Am I going to get noticed? All that kind of stuff. But actually, and I have been trying to do this, but you talking about today has actually really helped me kind of shift that framework. So like, I really, I really like the show that I do. The show is really good. It's fun. It's silly. It's gentle. It's great. So I'm trying to focus on that. In, and I enjoy performing it. I genuinely, so I'm trying to focus on enjoying the show. And then whatever happens around it happens. If I sell out every night, great. If I get patchy audiences, hopefully they'll still like it. You know, if I get agents coming to see it, great. But if I don't, I can talk to agents afterwards and say, I don't know, they're on the fridge. It's all like reframing it. Yeah. But as long as I enjoy the actual show and performing it, then hopefully that stuff comes with it. But it, yeah. again, it's hard. Edinburgh is so competitive. And you see other rats and they've got, you know, they're getting featured in the Telegraph and stuff. And you're like, why am I not getting, getting that kind of You don't of get coverage? featured in the Telegraph, right? Well, you know, <laughs> but it's because they've got they spent four grand on PR. You know, so yeah. it, there's always a reason for these kind of things. But I am who I am with my yeah. setup and stuff, and I'm trying to really focus on the enjoyment of you know doing the fringe is amazing and, and enjoying it, and then whatever comes comes. So I'm glad it's been really interesting 
talking to you today because I think I needed to hear that. And Jim, that's the that's when you hear people talking about it's you know, some of these cliche things, but like controlling the controllables, right? So, so for you, the one thing that you can be in control of is actually what enjoyment am I going to get out of this? Yeah. <laughs> like, why am I doing this in the first place? If if the rationale and reason is driven by I want agents, thousands of people to come and watch me and praise me and whatever else, you're not really in control of any of that. Yeah. So as a result, you've got a real chance of being pretty disappointed. <laughs> yeah. Because I know, even if it is a full house, you'd be like, oh, there's three seats on there and I'm yeah, disappointed yeah. there or whatever else, right? Well, if it's like, you know what? Even if this room's empty, I just love this show. I just yeah. love like the feeling of telling my gags or telling these stories and getting up and being a different human being creating a different persona and whatever else, that gives me fulfillment, that gives me enjoyment. If, and, then, and if there's a load of people that want to come see me do this and like think I'm funny, well, that's what a bonus that is. Yeah. And, and I'm teaching suck eggs, but I think that's where so many people are, are if you like, maybe just driven by the wrong things, and that's it's easy just to say, right, because you know, we all want, of course, we all want people to turn up and say, oh, it's really good rather than it's really bad. Yeah. But, if if you can almost numb yourself to that and be like, you know, that's not the reason I'm coming and that's not the reason why I've invested so much of my time and energy into creating a show and I'm going up to Edinburgh for a whole month and giving up all that time in my life and like, the reason I'm doing it is because I love it. Yeah. And that, that comes back, I guess, full circle to I lost sense when I was playing rugby, probably in the middle of my career, like 27, 28, where I didn't really know why I was doing it. Yeah. I was I was probably driven by like the fame and the money and the else, rather than when I was sixteen, seventeen, of like I play for free. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and and I noticed it. I really noticed it. And I I, I actually t- tried to change it at twenty nine, where I was like I turned down some big lucrative contract offers with some clubs to go and play and try and play in the uh the Olympics. I wanted to go to Rio twenty sixteen. That was my focus. And I wasn't gonna get any money really for it. It was the least paid of it all. But I felt like super excited about it. I felt like it was my raison d'etre for doing stuff. Uh, And obviously, like, you know, there was the accolade still of, like, being an Olympian and all that sort of stuff. But I was like, I really want to be... I just want to experience that thing. That's what I want to do. And unfortunately, I got injured, you know. I got injured in it. But but it was the only time I sort of readjusted and retuned back into what it was all about. And I remember, because I got injured, I felt like there was no closure in, on my career. Mm. And I went to Cambridge University to do an executive MBA. Uh, I was, what was I, 34? And when I was there, the rugby club approached and said, look, we'd really love you to, do you want to have a go again? And so I turned up on a Monday night to run around with these, like, 22-year-old students. And it was the best thing I ever did in my life because it was like wow. it was it was all the re- like they weren't getting paid and it was just it was just a crack and it was this opportunity of playing in the varsity match and I and I and I remember I got to play in the varsity match in 2018 I was 36 and my wife was in the in the crowd and she she said there was like a couple or something nearby who leant over and they're like oh I didn't realise they let professors play in the varsity match because <laughs> <laughs> I got so old. <laughs> I remember it was, I was on the field for 78 and a half minutes and I just loved every single minute of it. Because for me, it was Amazing. it was the closure I needed. And I was like, I'm at, 
like the home of rugby where it all began, where all as a five-year-old, all I wanted to do was play at Twickenham and all that sort of stuff. And I was doing it for all the right reasons this time. Mm. Yeah. And it just, it was the most, I actually did nothing in the whole game. Um, <laughs> and it was just the best, but it was the best experience I ever had in my life. And it was the closure I sort of needed for those exact reasons of, I'm just playing because I want to play, because I love it, because you know, I play for free. It's, you know, it's the enjoyment factor of this. Like, and that it was, I was, I count myself very lucky for that opportunity because otherwise I, I probably would have retired with a few regrets and then, you know, always wondering what if. But it was a cracking end for me anyway. That's amazing. I love so, that. I love that. Yeah. So, Jim, I hope it goes well, mate. I hope it's amazing up there. <laughs> Thank you. Hopefully, yeah, I think it will be. I am. I'm trying to go with the right, the right mindset. Um, it's going to be difficult because I, I'm doing the show about my well, nearly three-year-old daughter. So I'm going to be reminded of her while being away from her, which is going to be difficult. Although I do get to see them in the middle because my brother's getting married in Ireland in the middle of the run. So I'll hopefully get to see them there. Uh, but my wife is also six months pregnant as well. So I'm not quite sure oh, how awesome, I've swung mate. this one. <laughs> but um, so it's going to be difficult being away from them. But uh, they're very supportive. And I love the show, so yeah. Fingers crossed. I can't even promote it now because by the time this episode comes out, I think the Edinburgh will be over. But uh, oh, man, yeah, well, I mean, hey, good luck. My wife and I—we've got three kids, four, two, and ten months. So it's chaos. Wow. So, chaos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But yeah, good luck. It's gonna be great. What a great experience. Thank you, um, Ollie. I wanted to ask you about Optimist Performance because you yeah. did. You started that in 2018. Is that right? Around that time? Yeah, a bit, uh, well, a bit earlier. A bit I mean, earlier. Yeah. We we sort of became serious then if that yeah. makes sense um, tell us a bit about how it came about and, and what it is well originally it was just, you know, me turning up and telling a few war stories and stuff <laughs> like that about, you know, and then I got quite bored of hearing my own voice if that makes sense um, and I realised that actually you know I don't really like talking about myself that much but what I do love doing is creating experiences right stories stories narratives that really help unite people and what am i passionate about well i'm really passionate about building teams building teams and helping people fulfill their potential those are the things that i worship i love doing right i take massive pleasure out of that so i thought well can i leverage and use some of my experiences of everest and rugby and sailing and whatever else so um and distill those into some sort of let's call it like learning platforms learning modules but actually, the thing that I'm passionate about and I love the most and where all my learnings come from is not from any books. It's come from, okay, bloody hell, we're in the middle of the North Pole here and what do we do? Someone's just fallen through the ice and blah, 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 right? You know, like, and how, so I didn't want to recreate someone falling through the ice in North Pole, but, but what I wanted to do was how do we create scenarios, situations, experiences, context that allows people to touch and feel these things we talk about all the time? So everyone's like, oh, what does it take to be a good communicator? And they'll list out a whole load of things. But can I put you in a situation, a challenge or an experience or a scenario that is time-pressured, that is person-sensitive, that is fiscally challenging, I don't know, whatever it is, right, to test if you're a good communicator. Mm. And then let's record it and then let's play it back and say, Jim, You've told me that this is how you'd like to communicate. Da, 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 da. We just created this situation for you. Bum 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 bum. These are the rules. This is what you did. Do you think that is that a good reflection? What happened in that moment? What did you do? How did you feel? 
what what went through your mind that suddenly you, know, you had a team of ten, but you just spoke to two people, and these these other three over here, they went and got a cup of tea, and they had no <laughs> idea what you were talking about, right? What like what happened there? Why did yeah. that happen? How like if we were to play this again, what would you do differently? And then and then that's for me anyway. That's how you know, people. If you like practice, that's how people get better. They, they, they would put them into scenarios that get better, and and as a result, they can if you like touch and feel what being a good communicator is for them, right? Rather than me just saying, "Here you go, Jim. Here's all these things," and then they walk out of the room. They're like, it "Sounds good. I don't I don't really know how to do it. I don't know yeah. how to put it together." Um, and so that's sort of. I don't know, that's where we sort of began, Giles, and that's what it sort of flourished into now, which is we probably we do three things. Ex- executive coaching, so supporting people one-on-one, mentoring, whatever, around the, their own personal growth and their own personal journey, coupled then with, let's call it behavioural change, but how do we create, I'm obsessed by creating a, a sea of optimists. Right? I call it the eternal optimist. So how do we create a sea of optimists, these people that think, feel, do optimism, and, and whatever that means for them. And we build that across the third bit, which is like experiential scenarios, events, whatever you want to call it, like, but building that sort of narrative for people. And obviously it was starting to go pretty well. Then COVID hit and it didn't go very well. And mm. we managed to sort of stand, stay through that. And obviously the irony of it is at that, that point in time, so many people were sort of, feeling a plethora of emotions right yeah. and and you know the lack of community the lack uh, and the anxiety that comes through being on their own whatever else and transition from like okay we used to see everyone every day now it's once every six months yeah. um so all of that happened we managed to sort of get through that and now we're seeing a, a real take up in in what in what we do right because we're, i think we're pretty good at it and and we've got our RC of optimists. You've probably got 30, 35 people now in the business that have different walks of life from sport, business, adventure that cover different areas from mental health, diversity, inclusion, nutrition, leadership, teams, communication. And we, and we bring that into the hotspots of like, okay, how do we help this business or this team become the best version of themselves? Like, um, and often it starts with like, okay, what does that mean? What are the, what are the yeah. big rocks that we're going to build our values upon? You know? So what are the things we can't walk past without commenting on, right? Because loads of people write, I don't know, you go into so many companies and be like, oh, what are your values? And they'd be like, oh, leadership, honesty, <laughs> yeah, trust. Yeah. You're like, okay, cool. Well, tell me what trust means then. <laughs> what does that mean? Like, Giles, every time when you walk into work every single day, what do you do that demonstrates trust? How do you live and breathe being trustworthy as a behaviour? Yeah. Because that's the only way it becomes of any meaning and it delivers any real value. Otherwise, it's just a word. It's just a word that people will chant. And then, I don't know, when, when the proverbial hits the fan, they compromise it. Because it's really only under pressure when it all gets tested anyway. It's like, okay, well, there's a decision to make here and... We're on a deadline, and actually, I'm behind on this program, and I trust that Charles is going to do it, and he doesn't. Yeah, you know, or other way around. Giles, I trust Ollie's going to do it, and I don't because I see an opportunity that I can 
get one over Giles, and maybe that means I get promotion, or whatever else. Well, then all these values of like trust, honesty, integrity, we'll just chuck them out the window because mm. you're not you're not actually doing it. You're not doing the right thing, <laughs> and and living to the and and but but it's a bit like any form of skill. You can't just do it. You know, I, us three could not turn up tomorrow. Maybe, maybe you could, Jim, Giles, and play for Palace in the Premiership, right? Like, maybe we, stretch, yeah. we like we like we like to think we can, right? <laughs> but but you know, we you have to you have to live and breathe it every single day mm. in order to become the best version, best footballer, or best version of yourself. And it's the same on those values. Like, if you don't turn up every day and genuinely hold a mirror up to yourself at the end of it and say, you know what, today I was trustworthy. This is what I did. I I acted with honesty and integrity. You know what? It was really hard. Today was really hard because there was an opportunity for me to actually get something for my own good or, you know, further my own career or, I don't know, whatever else it is. But you know what? I didn't compromise on my values. I was, I acted with integrity. I acted with, with, with trust. Like, it's really, really hard. And you have to live and breathe and practice it every day. And then it becomes a habit. And so that's what we try and do anyway. Sorry, Charles, that was the no, long. No, it's amazing. No, it's it. fascinating. Yeah, it's really great, and it's great that you've um, that it's picking up again after COVID and stuff. And uh, you know, sounds like a vital thing that I'm sure a lot of corporations businesses and and sports teams whoever would yeah. really benefit from but, them and but a lot of this stuff right is it's my favorite right? it's common sense but it's just yeah. not common practice right yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. You know, everyone says it i mean everyone say like what do you think of all the cool the key values that you need to show every day it's like if i said to someone do you think it's really good that you nick a tenner out of someone's wallet every day yeah. it's like oh, no that's not very good it's not very good to, so what all do you think that shows trust and honesty and integrity if you I don't know, jump in front of somebody in the queue every single day or nick, nick their, whatever it is, I don't know, whether that's a bad example. They'd be like, no, it doesn't. Well, then why do we do it? Mm. Yeah. Like, if, if it genuinely matters to you that you want to be whatever these values are, like, why, 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 don't, why do we constantly, constantly contradict ourselves? That's all. And, so it's, and more often than not, it's people don't even realise they're doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, um, and you just, it's about holding the mirror up to people and you know keeping them accountable and all that sort of stuff. And yes, as I say, it's a bit like weight loss. We couldn't, even though we'd love to, we probably couldn't walk into the gym today. And if we did eight hours in the gym, we're not going to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger when we come out. You know, we, you have to go every day for ten years of your life, and that's a big sacrifice. It's a big discipline, and it's the same thing of like being a decent, trustworthy, honest person every day you've got to do it yeah. every day the day you compromise yourself the day you do a cheat and you don't go to the gym and you eat a chocolate bar you're like oh, I got away with that today because I might do it again tomorrow yeah. it's the same thing like you know the day you cheat on your husband cheat on your wife whatever you think oh I got away with that and, like it's the same thing it's, I, I, it's probably extreme examples but but it's not living and breathing the values that if they're really important to you you've got to be disciplined around um, 
I mean, that's probably pretty boring for people to listen to, but it's no, the truth. Not so, not so, no, no. It, I love the way you use Arnold Schwarzenegger as a bodybuilder. As well. I'm really showing your age and our age as well that we can get that <laughs> reference. I'm sure there's a younger version. Yeah. I don't know. Who. Don't know if I'd like to look like him now. But there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I like the idea of when you talk about the challenges and the self-reflection. I think that's important. Like, I, I, you know, I've been filming all my previews running up to the fringe, and like, although it's awkward to look back at them, I think we all find it a bit awkward sometimes. Like watching and self-reflecting and stuff it's been really useful and like looking at yeah. where i'm doing well where i'm not doing well and that's yeah it's, it's actually been really really helpful in sculpting the show but you can feel awkward sometimes looking back at yourself course, but, yeah. and also what's right? really interesting is watching back and thinking oh i'm quite good at this like some of this is quite good and that's been a nice uh, feeling as well yeah and that's also for some people really awkward right because yeah, they're not yeah. they're not conditioned to actually thinking about themselves in a positive light mm. and so all these things it's about yeah, but as you go through that process, you just get more and more accustomed to it and you get more and more habitualized around it and then it becomes easier. And I think that's the that's the key to anything, right? Is it's not, you know it's not the old practice makes permanent, right? But because it, it, nothing's ever permanent, right? But but I, I just think it just it, it just enables you to be a lot more clearer about everything. Yeah. Well it's been such a fascinating conversation and thank you so much for your time i know we've taken a lot of time thanks so much yeah really thank you so much thank you. really appreciate your really time and um, yeah thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been um, great to chat to you awesome cheers boys Phillips, what a top bloke. Uh, what a fantastically inspirational person. Some great stories, great anecdotes. And, you know, the stuff he's doing now as well uh, with, with Optimist Performance is uh, changing people's lives. So what a top bloke. Ticks every box of Blank Podcast, to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Um, could listen to him for days. Could have asked him way more nerdy questions about sport, which I do or we both do, yeah. in the patron section. Of course, we do extra content for all our patrons each week with every single guest. So uh, I got to ask him actually a question I've always wanted to ask a rugby player. So we're going to put that in the patron as mm. well. So if you want to hear that and extras from all our guests every week, go to patron.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash blank podcast. And it's in there. But just aside from that, great interview with an absolutely top bloke. And uh, we really, really wish him all the best for the future as well because he's, uh, yeah, he's doing good things. Yeah, I think probably, well, I know you said you certainly like talking in the podcast that you needed that little pep talk. Yeah. And oh, I felt like we did get like a bit of a, a yeah. bit, a bit of a, the optimist performance yeah. uh, kind of talk, which is great. You know, it was great to hear yeah. some of that stuff. And that's obviously stuff that he passes on when he does those talks and um, he has his optimist warriors that go out and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that help. Um, with corporations and leadership and sports teams and all sorts of things. And I felt like I needed that as well. And I know you said you vocalized that. You said you wanted that this week because of the, with fringe coming up. But I think, yeah, it was really useful to have, to hear some of those things. Yeah. It's funny how that happens on the pod, doesn't it? Like just timing wise, things seem to pop up when you need them. It's probably the same in life actually in general, if you, if you look out for them, but like, yeah, it was just the right time for him to come on and talk about that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah, he was, we hope that he was you a guest we yeah. needed at this moment, yeah. isn't it? It's funny. It's funny. And, and again, the universe we, spoke to us. We don't do this on purpose. We just book it when we book it and they yeah. come on and stuff. But it's just like, yeah, it was an ideal guest for this week. And uh, I'm sure our listeners 
have enjoyed that and has got as much out of it as we did as well. So thank yeah. you so much to, to and, and I will caveat that we, you know, you don't have to be into rugby to enjoy this uh, conversation. Yeah. This is like, you know, it's uh, we do talk about rugby, obviously, but it's there's so much more to it. Yeah, but that's where he's so good as well because he's able to talk about his experiences from that game but actually make them applicable for yeah. whatever you do. And that's what makes him so good at what he well, does. And he's done so many amazing things. Like, he's sailed around the world. It, in 11 months, it took them. Yeah. Uh, sailed around. He's done Arctic walks and cycled Everest. Across he's cycled across America. He's done some amazing yeah. Kilimanjaro. So, yeah. yeah so, uh, fair play to Ollie. He's really, really taken, taken life by the buller. Life by the ball. Life, life by, by the ball. The bull, life by the horns. Life by the horns. Yeah, that's the one. The bull of life. The, bull by the, yeah, yeah, <laughs> the life of bull. The bull, the bull of, of life. <laughs> he's taken by the horns. Uh, Look, we, we'll put a link below. I'm not going to become an optimist warrior anytime soon. <laughs> we'll put a link below to uh, to Optimus' performance and the stuff he's doing yeah. now so you can check it out if you if you like the sound of it as well. But thank you so much to Ollie for coming on, giving us his time. Um, it was it was a real joy talking to him. So it was uh, yeah great. I'm sure you guys enjoyed it. And got as much out of it as we did as well uh so yeah another good episode in the can i know <laughs> we're lucky aren't we um we well I'm, I'm gonna get back to the fringe uh get back to doing my show so hopefully i'll see do some you, blank could people you cut up a fringe for the fringe i do sort of have one but i sort of wear it up don't i wear it up <laughs> well i have, I have the sort of the, i have you know i wear yeah. it like a sort that of that's like you put it in a ponytail we wear it up. It's not. My hair line is not that strong <laughs> for that. But, uh, so no I man do what buns. I can. No band buns for me. No, mm. I do what I can with it. Um, but yeah, I used to have a fringe. I used to, but I've you know I've I've grown past that now. Yeah, I've had um, bowl cuts in the past. Been me horrendous. too. Horrendous. Me it's me like child too. child um, trauma. <laughs> it's a bit. <laughs> that's why I'm so obsessed with my hair. Anyway, that's for another episode when we get a, hair, a hairdresser on. Well, we are going to get one soon, so there we go. There's a little insight oh, into the future. There we, oh my god, almost like we planned it. Yeah. Uh, right. Anyway, okay. Have a good week, mate. I will see you next week for another episode uh, on the Black Podcast. Um, but uh, until then, have a good week. And you. Uh, we'll see, and same to all our listeners. And we'll see you again very soon on the Black Podcast. Goodbye.